You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Amanda Keller is one of Australia's most successful and loved media personalities. Whether it be hosting the nation's most listened-to radio show or presenting a number of top-rated TV programmes, Amanda has been at the head of the field for over 30 years. Also a respected author, actress and journalist, her sustained success as a popular entertainer is a real testament to her talent, hard work and sheer lovable relatability. So Amanda, welcome to Five of My Life. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Oh, well, listen, I've, I've been looking forward to this so much. And, and thank you for, for fitting us into your very busy schedule. You've just come off the radio, I imagine. I've just come off the wireless, but I've got a glass of water and a cup of tea. And that's all I need to survive. So I'm I going to be okay. I love it. And, and um, I've, your producer just told me you'd listen to the Holly Wainwright episode. That, that, yes. Yeah. Yes. Wasn't she great? Oh, wasn't she fantastic? Everyone wants to be her best friend. I wish she was my best friend. I love her. And she speaks very highly of you. <laughs> oh, yes, well, if she's not at my house this afternoon having a cup of tea with me, I'll be outraged. <laughs> now, on Five of My Life, we always start with the film. And you have chosen uh, Kevin Costner's Greatest Regret, the uh, <gasps> ensemble cast classic, the comedy drama 1983, The Big Chill. Explain yourself, Keller. Well, it's not a highbrow film, and it's not even a film that's necessarily my favourite But I don't go back and watch films more than once. I'm not a film buff. I'm not particularly a film person. But this film, I watched at a certain time of my life that just sears it into my heart. I had left university, um, which was in Bathurst in New South Wales, and I was sharing a flat with a girlfriend in Paddington in the heart of everything interesting it seemed to me in Sydney, having grown up in suburbia. And I felt like on so many levels, my life begins now. And we used to play the soundtrack to this album nonstop. We watched this film. I think we must have rented it on VHS, I think, because this would have been in the very early 80s. And we watched it again and again and again. And I had crushes on everybody. I just loved the whole thing about it. But when I think of that film, I think of that time of my life where all the possibilities were all beginning and I have such nostalgia for it. Why did Kevin Costner to regret it? Because he wasn't in it. So he was in it, but they oh, cut Kevin him out. Costner. I thought you meant Kevin Klein. Oh, that's no. right. Kevin Costner had an, uh, that's right. He was cut out of the whole thing and ended up just being a corpse and all you saw were his wrists. <laughs> but I, I love those early uh, flat share days. I have to ask, uh, who was the girlfriend? Are we allowed to know? Actually, of course, her name is Alicia. I saw her on the weekend, actually. We had lunch together on the weekend. We were working together at Simon Townsend's Wonder World. So I had applied for so many jobs when I finished uni, didn't get anything. 
finally got a job as actually as the producer's assistant on Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. I didn't even know what that job meant. So in the first day, I had to type a letter and I didn't even know how to use an electric typewriter. I was so gauche. I didn't even know it was embarrassing to ask someone how to turn it on. And the whole letter was scrunched up in the top right-hand corner. And I just looked like I was a mental patient. And everyone thought, what the hell is she doing here? Uh, And then a researcher resigned at the end of the week and I got the researcher's job and I was there for a couple of years and it was just brilliant. So she and I met both working there. Oh, just wonderful. And and, and what were the the things, the difference between uh, living with mum and dad and, um, even apart from the obvious, living with mum and dad and living in your own share house, what were the things that you most valued about being, you know, independent? Um, I'd gone from living with mum and dad in middle-class suburbia going to Bathurst for three years and living my own life there, but coming back to live with mum and dad again when uni finished. And I was always cynical and sneery about suburbia, and now I kind of love it, but I was kind of desperate to get away from it. So to live in the centre of the universe, that's what it seemed that Paddington was, where every night, because I do breakfast radio now, it shocks me that I went out at night. Every night we'd go out dancing. We had a variety of clubs that we'd dance in. We'd dance around the handbags. I had my flock of seagulls hair with the shaved sides and I'd wear a little pork pie hat and the fingerless gloves are like Madonna. And (laughs) just the freedom, the freedom. We had stupid parties with cask wine. Andrew Denton I went to uni with and I remember him getting bashed one after or assaulted leaving a party at our place. It was just, it was (laughs) not necessarily for him, but what a great time to be alive. So it just felt... That every night there was a party, every night I had a crush on someone. It was just all that fabulous stuff that I look back on so fondly. I'm sure at the time there was heartbreak and there was anxiety and there was all the rest of it. But I don't remember that when I look back on it now. And, and are you in the main still mates with those people or, or have, have they over the years they've fallen away? Uh, a bit of both. As I said, Alicia and I are still very good friends and saw each other on the weekend. Andrew and I are very good friends. People from uni and I, we all still see each other. So, yes, I see a couple of school friends, but most of my formative relationships have come from those days and from the Simon Townsend Wonderworld days. That was a hard place to work. It was a children's show, but Simon was quite a hard taskmaster. And people work there who've won Academy Awards as cinematographers and things. A lot of high achievers have come from that show. And a friend of mine who was working one of the top jobs at Channel 7 said she's never been as stressed as she was having to get Simon ready for a studio day on Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. She used to work at Beyond 2000 and she'd have six crews all around the world but never had that same anxiety. So (laughs) it was a tough workplace. So we were forged in steel together, I think. Oh, gosh, it's, it's fabulous to hear. I mean, I, I, when I go with my wife back to, to Europe, we've been there for 22 years, is one of the biggest thrills is catching up with, with our version of those friends. Just, you know, people that you met at uni and in your first job. It's, it's sort of days, those shared memories and experiences. You, even if you haven't seen them for three years, it's like you were just with them, you know, the day before. Absolutely. And my son, who's just started media studies, he was doing arts last year and decided he needs to do, he'd be better off doing media studies. Um, he's had to swap unis to do it. And I said... Go in with an open heart. You, yes, you've got your existing friends, but this is where you're going to meet your lifelong colleagues. These are people who you will work with forever. Yeah, wonderful. Now, on Five of My Life, I love the way different people, this is the whole point of the format, different people choose to respond to the format. So I, I've got the format, that will never change, but how people respond to it 
does. And when we come to the second choice, which is the book, uh, Holly, who we mentioned earlier, she chose a children's book. Uh, Jordan Harbinger chose a comic. Uh, Rob Carlton chose a play. I was very stern with him, but he'd never seen it. He'd only read it, so I let him have a play. Uh, Charlie Teo chose his own book, which I think is fabulously Charlie. There you go. <laughs> You've chosen your own book, mate. Um, and Amanda Keller has chosen her teenage diary. So could you please, um, I mean, I think you need to describe it, tell me the years that are involved, and then tell me the story behind why you've chosen that on five. Oh, there it is. I've got the diary. Oh my God, it's an A4 monster. It was, my father brought this home from work. It was an old ledger book, I think. Right. But only a couple of the pages had been written in. And I filled it full. I wrote in it every night, but I've also filled it full of clippings from the newspaper, um, pictures, things are inspirational quotes that I've seen. I was never as deep a thinker in my entire life as I was as a teenager. And so I think this, I've written at the top, Amanda Keller, my memoirs. That's nice, isn't it? <laughs> and I think it is probably, let's have a look at the first date here as to when I started it. 1977, I think. So I would have been maybe 15. Right. And I had forgotten about this diary and it was under the house. And I was asked about diaries on something. I thought, I've got an old diary. And I dug it out. And I remembered it just being filled with my love of Barry Manilow, which I'll get to because that covers almost every page. <laughs> but when I first opened it up, what fell out was it, oh, I'm going to get emotional, was a picture of a friend of mine at the age of 16 who passed away. Oh. And it was a school photo of my friend Alana. And I'd forgotten that that's what the diary had that's how it began, right. that the diary begins with Alana dying. Oh. And I pour out all my thoughts. I keep dreaming about her. I talk to her mum. I try and work out, make sense of it. And I just wanted to hug myself at my poor 15-year-old self going through all of that because all the emotions are on the same plane. I get my wisdom teeth out. And that has the same drama as going to Alana's funeral. It's everything is so heightened, but I and I had no perspective on it. And I'm still in touch with Alana's family. And I just must think when I see them at the sliding doors, I'm 61 years old. They lost a 16 year old. It's it's uh, and I'd forgotten that that's what the diary had be, had started as. Okay, can I ask what what happened to? Uh, uh, she had leukemia. Oh dear, right. And after that, it then became teenage everything. But that's how it started. And I remember writing as well that she had done a maths exam weeks before she passed away, just weeks. And she didn't do very well. And I hid it. I've got it in my diary. I hid it because I didn't think her parents needed to see it, mm. like they would have given her rats. Mm. And I also write about how she, told, how she told me she'd come out of remission. And to my shame... I pretended I didn't hear her because I didn't know how to deal with it. Hmm. And all that came flooding back to me. I was probably in my 30s or 40s when I found the diary. It all came flooding back as this huge chunk of my life that I had remembered quite differently. But to be that's the beauty of this diary, to take you back into the drop zone of who you were. And then, as I said, I went on for my love of Barry Manilow, my need to live big, I want to be blah, blah, blah. And... I often think how thrilled I'd have been to see the life I've lived. So I keep this beside my bed as a touchstone 
Wow. When I feel overwhelmed or tired or ungrateful or whatever, it reminds me of what's important and how thrilled I'd be at how it all worked out. I'm sorry to be emotional. <laughs> no, it's just... Well, wow, so that is on your bedside table. Not, not. It is, along with a little Snoopy dog, like a beanbag dog that's next to me as well, that my grandmother gave me when I was about 15. And I remember my I was telling the story of Snoopy to my son when he was younger. And I said the same thing, that my grandmother had given me this. And when I was doing all my studies and writing in my diary, Snoopy would sit on my shoulder and Snoopy was everything. I got to the end of this emotional story of how Snoopy would have loved to see I've got two gorgeous boys, blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the story, Jack said to me, is that all you got for your birthday? <laughs> That's the only bit he'd heard. <laughs> so those things are touchstones that I keep near me to remind me, not to remind me to be grateful because I'm not an ungrateful person, but to remind me sometimes that when I'm feeling overwhelmed, this is everything I ever would have wanted. Yeah, and I, I mean, you and I have spoken in a in a different forum, but about I, I, I have little patience for people who whine on about getting old because the alternative is being underground and there are many people who would, um, you know, give their right arm to, well, they can't because they're underground. I, 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 I give speeches, uh, corporate speeches, and one of the questions I regularly ask is, does anyone here have someone who is younger than them that has predeceased them? And I have never had an audience ever where, where, where less than 95% of people raise their hand. And you go, well, there you go. We're, we're the lucky ones. We are the lucky ones. I'm the same. I have no patience for, the, uh, for people talking about getting older. I'm about to have another hip replacement in a couple of weeks. And when people say, oh, you're getting old, I say, couldn't care less. Yeah. This is, I'm going to have it fixed. And isn't that great? It gives me another lease on life. But how lucky. We're so lucky. We really are. The, the Japanese have got a phrase for it, can recce. So when you turn uh, 60, they don't view it as an ending. They view it as a beginning. I love yeah. it. Third trimester. At the third trimester, I've got many female friends who are looking at this at the moment. Our third act, that the, you've had your career, you've had your child rearing. And for many... You've sort of maybe had jobs, but not a career while the kids were younger. What's the third act? I remember someone saying that the first person in Australia, the first person to live to be 120 is probably already alive and is possibly an Australian female who's now 60. Wow. And they have no idea that they are going to live to 120. So financially, that's horrifying. <laughs> but also in terms of you don't wrap up your life in your 60s anymore. You've got another big chunk to go, so fight, pursue the passion if you can. Yeah, and, and me, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of this. It is I want my 60s to be my best decade, my 70s to be my best decade. You've just changed the criteria. I mean, you're a moron if you keep the same criteria because you probably can't do the things that you used to do when you were 17. But so what? You enjoyed those when you were 17, and the things you do when you're 67 will be different. You redefine what success and happiness means to you authentically rather than trying to, I mean, let's not, don't get me on bloody plastic surgery and all that stuff you don't try mm. and pretend not to be the mm. age that you are you're the best version of the age that you are and you enjoy it don't get me started about this is about you not me <laughs> <laughs> i'm only going for hip replacement i'm not having a brazilian butt lift just so you know <laughs> now the song oh my god can i i mean you are a, a national treasure radio legend amongst many other things but i, I need to spruik the five of my life spotify playlist because your choice like every one of my other hundred guests up to date choices goes on the spotify playlist and the the brilliant thing is it's utterly unique 
because rather than what the algorithms rightly do, if you like anthemic love songs or blues tracks or rap, it just gives you more of the same stuff. And, and if you're in a van, you know, listening to the radio, you want to hear all the familiar classics, blah, blah, blah. I get all that stuff. But if you're going for a long seven hour drive and you smack on the Five My Life playlist, you will get all my guest choices, including your fabulous choice, <laughs> that are totally unrelated. And that makes the, the, the playlist just lovely to, to listen to. So I'm going to add that on in a, in a half an hour. You have chosen I Knew I Loved You Before I Met You by Savage Garden, recorded and released in said to me what's your favorite song i'd never pick this song this is nothing that i put on a playlist ever i'm glad it's going to be on yours but <laughs> it's a song that i've heard on the radio a song that was here and there but there was a, a, a moment i heard it that summed up something amazing for me and um and that's i've spoken about this before but harley and i my husband and i had a long journey to parenthood and i had years of ivf and years of false starts and years of disappointment and sadness. And then finally there was that snippet of hope. Our blood levels were up. Tiny little heartbeat appeared on the ultrasound. And it just, I was so scared to accept this. It's funny because Harley was reticent going through that process. But the minute we saw a tiny heartbeat, he just opened his heart to it. it was I went the other way. I was so terrified that this wasn't real. But I, was, I wasn't pregnant enough to tell anybody, but I was driving in my car and, oh, you're always going to make me cry. This is terrible, Nigel. <laughs> and this song came on. I knew I loved you before I met you. I thought I dreamed you into life. And I just had to pull over on the side of the road and sob and sob and sob. And now I look at these giant burly boys. I've got Jack, uh, Liam, who's, <laughs> what are their names again? <laughs> who's 21 and Jack, who's 19. And sometimes I still give myself a thrill if I ask Liam to come down and help me with the groceries. I open the garage door with the garage door opener. And as the garage door lifts up, I go back to my old self and say, this garage door is about to lift up and your son's in there. <laughs> and it goes up and I see his legs and I see his chest and I see his hair. And I still get a thrill that I had two children and that it actually happened. It's still a miracle to me that it happened. So that song was the very genesis of, me, me having wished and wished, and finally I could, I could give into it. And 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 the, the song title is utterly perfect for the, for the story that you've just told. You 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 heard yeah. the news, and you obviously hadn't met Jack or Liam, but but you you were yeah. going to, and ah. Oh. And I'd wished for them for so long, and willed them for so long, and I always thought this is where life will bite me on the bum, that I'm looking down the barrel of childlessness, and I'd say to Harley. I don't know how I'll deal with this if it doesn't happen. And we didn't tell a lot of people we were doing IVF because I didn't want to be defined by the loss or the mm. lack and didn't want people asking me every month how we were going. So I'd have injections and have an, a general anaesthetic in the afternoon and turn up for a breakfast radio the next morning. I think my stoicism saved me through that. I know everyone has different ways of coping, but that I think was part of my coping mechanism is just... L 
life goes on and we try and slot this in because if I gave up everything to try for it, I don't think I could have survived. We had another uh, wonderful guest on, um, Mary Custis. Effie. Oh, Mary. Yeah. Mary's story is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and there's something uh, that you said. This is this is ages ago. I've been reading up all about you. So old interviews that you gave. 20 please years. remind me. I can't remember. So please. Well, well. So, so I wanted to ask this because there are so many lovely things that that I've I've written down that you've said in the past. Um, but one of the things that struck a chord with me was I really like the idea that most situations can be saved with humour. And I don't know how far that can go. You know, something as, as, as intimate and touching and raw and, and, and important as I don't want to not have kids and I might not, ha- not have kids. Did, did, did humour still come in and save you there or is that beyond the, the, the boundaries? I, oh, it's hard to remember. I don't think I could have spoken about it at the time. I don't think I had the emotional language at the time. Um, and I don't think I, I, isn't that funny? I've never thought about that. Me going to work every day and laughing saved me. I couldn't have laughed about that, but I going to work doing breakfast radio with Andrew Denton at the time, we'd laugh every day. And for that period of time, I could put my brain in a different box. So humor very much kicked in there. I remember we did a radio competition. It was around the turn of the century. Doesn't that sound weird? The last time, and that was that was in 1999, going into 2000, and we had a competition to see if people were going to have a millennium baby, and they had to be committed couples wanting to have a baby, and I think seven out of the ten got pregnant, and I had to sit through this competition, and I just <laughs> and I just found it so hard, and I used to think people can get pregnant by sniffing a pair of underpants in the back of a car, so. Uh, all the heartbreak I bit down on, but going somewhere funny every day, I think, saved me. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that nuance. It's not being humorous about the issue you're dealing with. It's about being hu- having a space to be humorous about other stuff. That, that That's gives, right. Yeah, yeah. I could, I could survive because I could laugh at other things. I think that was the thing. And I've had friends who've gone through IVF who've stopped work and things to focus on the journey. Um, I think that would be really, really hard because if I focused too much, I think I would have disappeared up my own bum. Yeah. Well, hey, and, and, and Jack and Liam, my, my word. That, that. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. And when we had one, actually we had one, we had Liam, and it never occurred to me to have more. Right. And at one point I thought, do I want to get to 50, which seems so long ago, and look back and think we should have tried again. And we had a family friend who'd lost a daughter and she said, <laughs> she said, I think you should go again because if you, if I didn't have to get out of bed to look after the kids, I would have gone under. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't so much the sadness of that, but I started to think, oh, should we, should we think about going again? And the second time around, my fertility was such, even through IVF, that so many fewer embryos. With Liam, we had... Em- big stack of embryos and we'd go through them every month and nothing, nothing, nothing. There was this tiny tube left in the freezer, had three of them in. And in those days, most people didn't get a baby. One out of three got a baby. Majority in IVF didn't. And the doctor said, I want to try a new technique. And I said, I owe it to those last three in there, the runts of the litter, one of whom is Liam. We now know this big six-foot rugby player. And then with Jack... Only two survived the process, 
put two in, only one remained, and that was Jack, which is a clean ending. I think I would have felt very conflicted if I had embryos left. I didn't want more children, but I don't know how women deal with that, knowing that that potential is frozen somewhere. I think I'd just have to freeze it forever. I think that'd be a very difficult decision to make. And, and were you surprised, depressed, pleased by other people's reactions to your journey? The, the, the people in your closest circle that, that you would have known you were doing this, um, were there people who didn't know what to say or people who were a real comfort? Um, a bit of both, and I appreciate that. It's made me look back on how I have probably spoken to people going through stuff I wasn't aware of too. Um, being asked if there's any news was a terrible thing. I used to say, I'll tell you when there's news. Most A mixed bag. And so most people just let us get on with it. I did find it hard that people would say to me, you've been married for 10 years. When are you going to have kids? Yeah. As if it was always a choice. They never asked my husband that, asked me. And we got an email from a guy once we were working on the radio. He said, when I finally could, I fantasised about saying the words out loud and I could finally say the words I was having a baby. And he wrote a fax, that's how old this is, saying... I wondered when you'd be brave enough to take that leap. Oh, I said, dear. oh, God, you've got no idea yeah. of what it's taken to get here. So I'd like to think I'm far more sensitive to that, um, having been through that. Yeah. I, 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 Kate and I, we, we've got four kiddies, and, and I remember you look back and you hope you've done the right thing. But there was one occasion where we announced, you know, we were pregnant again, and this was with twins. And, and, you know, dear friend, we announced it to, you know, burst into tears and ran out the room. And, and you go, oh, Christ, you, you know, there's, there's something going on there that, you know, I didn't know. I, I, I would have been, you know, more downbeat about our news if I'd known that, you know, there's bloody Nigel and Kate going, they're going to have two more and I want one, you know. So it's, yeah, it's, but it's so hard for people like I wanted my friends to tell me their news, but I, I needed them to tell me and I wanted to be the friend to hear it. But it stabbed you every time. Yeah. But you still want to be the person to hear it. Uh, my friend Vanessa Gorman lost a baby at full term. She's written a book about it and made a film about it called Losing Layla, an extraordinary film that has taken her to film festivals all around the world where she touches base with people who've lost children. She's gone on to have two other fabulous kids. But that was really hard. And I remember saying to her, or she said to me during so many IVF attempts, I'd change the world for you if I could. And to say those words back to her, but this juggle we had between... I remember her coming in to hold Liam as a newborn, maybe only a year after she'd lost Layla. And I just had to sit and let her deal with what it was. Because from the minute you're fertile, the story that you get when you pee on a stick can be your friend and your enemy and tell a thousand stories. The fertility journey is an extraordinary one for men and women. And we're all at different stages at very, very different times. But sharing good news for someone who's going through a hard time, don't stop sharing the news. But may, oh, it's, it, who knows? Who knows yeah. what the answer is? It's just to be human is to be complex, isn't it? It's difficult. I, I suppose the, I mean, to, 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 to wrap this particular thing up on a positive note, it's incredible that medical science, you know, 100 years ago, we wouldn't be in this conversation. You, you no. know, it's just, just incredibly fabulous that people who it isn't going to naturally happen with by being winked at um, can have, you know, stories like yours, like Mary's are just, I, I find they're just sensational. It's incredible. And yet it holds out the promise, which is great, but it also holds out a promise that for some will never be fulfilled. It's like if you tell someone that you've got cancer, touch wood, I don't, touch wood, you don't, 
people will tell you, try this, go to Mexico, eat almond kernels, whatever it is. At some point, you need to take a breath and accept. And I said to our IVF doctor, will you tell me when that time Hmm. is right so that I don't spend my whole life searching for something without finding peace with it? Here we go. Your fourth choice is your place. And you've chosen one of my favourite places, actually. You've chosen Culborough. Could you tell my listeners who, who might not know where that is, where it is, describe it, and tell us your story behind that? Until recently, I didn't know where it was. <laughs> it's on the south coast of New South Wales. It's about sort of three hours south from my home in, uh, in the eastern suburbs. And um, during COVID, I was looking for somewhere to go for a holiday. Everything got locked down and blah, blah, blah. For my radio holidays, I thought it would be nice to get away. And someone said, why don't you just get an Airbnb? And she booked it for me. She said, here's a place called Kalbara. I'd never heard of it. And I'd actually had a meeting with our accountant two months before saying, who would have a holiday house? Who would? (laughs) And then we stayed at this place and I walked on the beach with the dog and I had an epiphany. And I just thought, this is what I need. And my brother actually has often said, you need a third place, meaning you have your work, you have your home, and your third place is your men- is a mental state, is a is anything. What's your other? And I'd never had an other. I used to say to him, well, I like to read. And he said, no, that's not an other. But this place mentally is my other. And so we go down there maybe once a month and or every couple of weeks and holiday there. And I'm just, I allow myself to be other. I allow myself to take my brain out, to slow my pace down. I'm different there, but also it allows me to step out of my people-pleasing mode, which means I say yes to everything and everyone. And to have a realistic reason to say, I'm not going to be here. I had to buy a holiday house to do it. But to be strong, to be able to say, I'm just not available, to make myself not available. Can I read a quote that I saw the other day that I loved? Yeah, please do. It says... The older I get, the more I realise the value of privacy, of cultivating your circle and only letting certain people in. You can be open, honest and real, while still understanding that not everyone deserves a seat at the table of your life. I love it. That, to me, was great. So I'm trying to prioritise what's required for my mental health, for my family's priorities, without pleasing everybody else. And part of that was buying a house where I can say, sorry, I'm not going to be here. I'm shutting up shop for a while. So I I love the topic of uh, saying no and saying no in a a gracious way. When when I was a young advertising executive, you you know, we'd be working long hours, stupid, a bit bit like when you were in Paddington, I imagine, you you know, you're working hard, is if I were to say to someone, uh, I'm going now, it's six o'clock, I'm going, and and they go, why? We want you to carry on working because everyone is. I go, oh, because I'm going to go home and have some beans on toast and watch the telly and go to bed. That Gee, wouldn't you were be, the life. That wouldn't be acceptable. If I go, oh, because I've got a squash game booked at ten past six, th- there's a thing that allows other people to accept your no. That makes sense? It, Absolutely. And I admire people who who can say no without 
having to buy a holiday house or, or pretend they've got a squash game. <laughs> and I tell you, sorry, one of my other guests, uh, the lovely James Valentine, has this thing where hey, it's such good advice. Where I mean, obviously he gets, I'm sure like you do, gets asked to do a whole bunch of things all the time. And you know, early on, he realised that if you give a sort of a, an equivocal, oh, I'll have to think about that, you get phone calls 11 months later saying, oh, M- Amanda, the thing that you're talking about next week, uh, it's on. Uh, you know, are you all right? Do you want a car? And you think, blimey, did I say yes? Did I say no? Oh, so you end up saying yes because you think, well, I can't let them down because obviously I said yes then. Whereas if you have a blanket, polite no to every request, which is what he does. Yeah. So could you talk at my charity do whatever it is? And you go, do you know what? The answer is no. And then over the next few weeks, you might be able to talk me into a yes. But the answer is definitely a no. Then you know that you're in the clear. That's that's how we should all be. And I used to look at Andrew Denton, who gives his time very generously to things. But when he can't do something, he just says no. Yeah. And that's and people like to know where they stand. I'm pathetic. I'm that former one with James <laughs> talking about. You go, oh, look, no. But if it was a different date and they say, well, we'll change the date. Yeah. <laughs> bugger. Bugger. Because people don't, if you just say no, they're okay with that. Totally. That's why we don't allow ourselves to. It's like no is a complete sentence. Yeah, 100%. Now, I have to ask you, and, and God, I'd be thrilled if you haven't been to this place, but I imagine you have. Have you been to Honeymoon Bay? No. <gasps> Do you know about Honeymoon Bay? No. Oh, my God. Word, sort is this your on life the South out. Coast? Uh, I have it, it, so it, much ignorance. Oh, right. Well, this is, I, I am, you're welcome, Keller, right? Because mm-hmm. the best beach in the world is about 15 minutes away from your holiday house. I'm writing it down as we speak. Honeymoon Bay, sort it out, get there the next time you go there. Because you, you have to drive through a national park down a down a untarmacked road. I mean, as, as a pom who comes from, you know, a shitty part of London, I, I went to... Uh, Honeyman Bay with with my mates who live in Greenwell Point just up the road from you. Yes, um, and it's like uh, it's like the island of Sodor and Thomas the Tank Engine. You go, this is stupid. <laughs> How can this sand be white? How can it be? It's like wine glass play, but but smaller. And then it and it the heads go out into Jarvis Bay. It, it's just it's just paradise, basically. You should be keeping this secret, night. Well, well, I'm just telling you. So Whisper, please get there. Because oh, well. <laughs> when we get there, when we go to Calbara, everyone says, "Have you been here? Been here? Been here?" We go there, get out of the car. Chances are I might go to the BWS and that's it. <laughs> so I should explore some more. Well, I guarantee, I guarantee you will not be disappointed. All right. Thank you. On to the last choice. And, and we are brothers from another mother or sisters from another mister or whatever they say. Because my wife on our honeymoon, God love her, we went canoeing and she dropped our wedding ring, her wedding ring, in a lake. We spent the next eight hours hiring divers to try and find it. Oh, really? And she lost her... And people were saying, well, there you go. She didn't ever want to marry you anyway. But luckily, that was 31 years ago. Anyway, so your choice on Five My Life of Possession is your replacement wedding ring. So I imagine you might have a, a similar story. Very similar story. My Harley and I were living at the Northern Beaches, and we, we'd probably been married a couple of years, but he was trying to teach me to catch a wave hopeless and at one point he flung me into the, the from the water down towards the shore and my wedding ring came off and I was working at beyond 2000 and about to go away for an eight-week trip without a wedding ring how thrilling but I was a distraught what does this mean looking for symbolism in all of it like you're saying people say to your wife she didn't want to be married to saying what does all this mean 
some old you know man with no ass with his metal detector is going to find it in three weeks time but Harley made the most lovely speech and he said to me that this is how it should be the relationship should outlast the jewelry and uh, we got another one got a replacement one and I until we I talk about it like this I forget that this isn't the one that was placed on my finger the day we got married because I think that's a nicer story in a way too and the other one it never turned up but that's part of the longevity of relationships as well in that pop culture celebrates the beginnings of relationships and we celebrate the well not celebrate we dramatize the endings of relationships whereas the real meat of life is in the middle and the workings of life the riches the the sadness the boring bits all of that meat is in the middle and we never see it represented anywhere and so Harley's speech touched me in by saying the gaudy stuff comes and goes the real meat is what survives and uh, and that's so true and we're coming up you, you said you've been married 31 I think we're 33 years this year and, you know, there's ups, there's downs, there's all that usual stuff. And in the early days of our relationship, I used to kind of judge it in a way. I'd hold it up like a prism to the light saying, how do I feel about this and how's it going? And after a while, you kind of just accept it. And I think that's part of what being married does. It allows you to go, well, we've decided now, let's all relax <laughs> to the point of just not overanalyzing stuff, just living it. Um, and that's, you know, here we are 33 years later and, um, and, and still haven't murdered each other. I think there's something, Alan de Botton writes about this. I just, just Oh, that was, that's the book that I quote every time, The Course of Love. Why haven't we met before? Well, we have once, but we should have met more than once. It Absolutely. Is, that book is incredible about all this stuff, isn't it? Oh, so the, just the, the difference between falling in love, which usually is, I fancy, a root, and growing in love, which is I'm going to bring up two children, give a, you know, make a contribution to society, you know, bring up functioning family, you know, exactly as you say, the meat in the middle. And there's this, this moronic, uh, I, I see it, I have to follow certain people on Instagram because of the show and whatever N not, not my guests they're all lovely but I had just have to follow people who I normally wouldn't follow and, and there's this growing thing about oh um, length of a relationship it, it isn't you know an important uh, criteria of success and you go what are you talking about it, it's not the only one but it definitely is if mm. you've been married to Harley for I don't know nine happy years and then you broke up because you hated each other I think that's less successful than being happily married for 33 that's not pouring shit on people who haven't got long relationships but we should be able to say i think it's incredibly fabulous when people work it out to be life soul partners for for life i mean I, i'm you know touching wood now i want to grow old with kate that that's yeah. not and, and I, I wrote in uh, not my latest one i think my second book about how it, it sometimes i think there should be a new marriage vows which is you know for, for, for better or for worse blah 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 uh, you know sickness and in health um and until the kids leave school. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to reserve the right to, to, to have a review. You know, I'm, I'm not in the... I mean, so when I got married, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I'm right, but just my personal choices, I got married for life. That doesn't mean the gorgeous Kate will stay with me forever, but I want her to, right? Not, I'll, I'll, we'll have kids, and then I'll have a look around and see if there's a better option. My third trimester, there's, you know, I'm going to nick off with the, you know, the 
the fancy girl around the corner. Or, or so you've obviously spied one. <laughs> but, there, <laughs> but there is so much option. And I feel sorry for upcoming generations. Even the dating apps, people are getting swiping fatigue. There's too much, too many options. There's no set and forget. There's no make a choice. Love's a doing word. Make a, you know, so the love is in the way you live your life every day. You can choose and then make that your your journey and duty. Duty is a very unattractive word. And yet I think that's underrated in terms of how you help and serve each other as well. If we all put ourselves first and say, where's my happiness today? Am I feeling fulfilled today? I, all those affirmations that we see everywhere, that's not life. You know, love your dreams, whatever. If my dream is skinning a cat, that's not helping anybody. So I think we've lost the, the old, what, how old do I sound? We've lost the old way of purpose, of a life of purpose. Yeah. And part of that purpose is loving and being loved, I think. Yeah, and service. That There's something that, I'm embarrassed to say this because I'm on a podcast, but it is, I really love the fact that when I researched you, I couldn't really find out much about Harley apart from I love his paintings by the way I think they're fantastic um and, and you don't yeah you, you are I was talking to Mandy earlier my producer you, you are a real inspiration because you have uh, you're at the top in a in a sort of shark infested also angel infested world where you you stay at the top but you're real you don't parade your own personal stuff for for clicks uh, it's just lovely and there's something from the other interview that I read from you about 25 years ago, where you said, hold fast to what's important. And I just think that's, you go, wow. Gee, I was deep. Did that come from my diary? <laughs> yeah, you were, you were good. But back in the day, you were good. Uh, so just the notion of, you know, we've all got to, you know, clean our teeth in the morning and pay our taxes and do stuff. But, but you know, the, the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. You know, at the end of the day, it yeah. makes fuck all difference, excuse my language, if you lose your wedding ring or if your ratings go down or up on Wednesday or Tuesday. But you've got, you know, family you love and you're, a, you, you know, you're happy in your own skin. You've got a smile on your dial and you're a, you're a bloody inspiration, Keller. Well, that's very kind of you, but I, you do need to be reminded of that. I don't have media friends. I don't live a media life. But I remember going through a period years ago before we had kids where it was hard at work and stressful. And Harley took my hand. And we sat outside under a tree and he said, this is our life. This is what matters. And I've always remembered that, that if, if there's a bell over your head, if things aren't right at home, and that's kind of how it's always been. I do my job and I go home and I have an afternoon sleep like and drool or, and we have a dinner as a family, maybe watch a bit of TV and I go to bed. We might have friends over for dinner on a Saturday. That's as glamorous as my life gets. But Harley, to his credit, he, he was working at Beyond 2000 with me when we met. And he was a producer. He'd been a feature film editor in New Zealand. Um, and then when the babies came along, he'd been a documentary producer and had been travelling, working on things with Disney and National Geographic. When the babies came along, he was the one at home when I went to work every morning and he would occasionally go and do film shoots but by and large those are the roles that we settled in and we've always encouraged our boys to know that dad's a filmmaker and he's taken up uh, he's gone back to his art school days and paints as you said so the kids have always known that dad has a rich creative life but he's the one that was there in the morning if they fell over fell out of the school bus or whatever it was so we've made it work as a as a 
team effort. And there'd been some days, poor Harley, when I came home and he said, oh, I've painted this great picture. I said, oh, good on you, whatever, even though they were decisions we made as a couple. I think I wish I could have done that today. But by and large, he's been very happy to put his ego second uh, without ever losing a sense of his strength in our home. Oh, gosh. Well, listen, I'm now hoping you're going to answer my last question in a certain way, but I can't, I can't lead the witness. So the last question on Five of My Life is, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next and why? Has Andrew Denton been on your I, list? I'd love, I'd, no, he hasn't. Andrew is an extraordinary person who is funny, smart, daggy. A lot of people think his intellect stops him being daggy and stupid, but he's all those things. And he's recently been advocating for end of life, but he still wants to create laughter and love in his life. He travels extensively. He's, I think, uh, I think he's a gem of a person and would be a gem of an interview because he remembers details from his life forensically. Well, so, well you're going to have to help me out because I, I, I fear that I might be on one of his no lists if I ask. Oh, really? He might go, never heard of Five of My Life. So, so if, but if you asked him for me, which I might send you an email later. Sure, <laughs> I'll help you out. He does travel a lot, but I know that when he was doing a lot of lobbying for uh, end of life work, he felt he needed to bring some light into his life again. So this might remind him to have a laugh. Uh, Amanda, I, I have adored this conversation. Thank you for responding to the Five of My Life Challenge in, in the, you know, I, I knew you would, in the wonderful, gorgeous, authentic, funny, moving way that you have. And, and go to Honeymoon Bay. I will. And you know what? I deserve a prize because I only cried twice. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda, thank you for being on Five of My Life. Loved it. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.